Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Corinthians. I'll be reading chapter 9, starting in verse 24, going to chapter 10, verses 13. Again, that's 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 9, at verse 24, going to chapter 10, verses 13. First Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that all that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain in all things. Every, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself sh should be disqualified. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were, bap were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that, it not, that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We've, uh, as I say, been in anticipating this day for quite some time, and uh, we're going to, in just a little while, hear some testimonies from folks that the Lord has graciously saved. And um, they're going to begin their Christian life in a, in a manner of speaking by being baptized. That's marking out the beginning of their uh, life in Christ. And then later we're going to hear some more testimonies, this time from folks that, that have been Christians for some time. And they will no doubt share how the Lord has uh, saved them and also has led them faithfully uh, all the way. And so it's going to be a day of joy and celebration and that's why I'm a little hesitant to do what I'm about to do. This passage of scripture that I've chosen for the occasion is not exactly an exuberant one. Okay, it's not really a text that's known for its joviality. It's, it's a text, it, rather, that is known for its reality. It offers us a, a real big dose of reality. And I take great comfort in, in knowing that you folks appreciate that kind of a thing. Okay, that's one thing I love about you Yankees. I've been in the South for a couple of weeks on vacation. And uh, I got to say, I love being among, uh, I love Southerners, don't get me wrong. But I'm at home with the Yankees because you're raw and you're real. And there's little uh, by way of pretension you know, you appreciate straight talk. You like me to 
to, to give you the straight dope. And so, thankfully, the Bible is full of straight talk. Uh, the Bible's not pie in the sky. It's not a sales pitch, you know, with all of the fine print kind of hidden at the bottom. No, it's, uh, the Bible's very, very realistic. And you'll find that, that scripture is very upfront. Yes, about the joys of the Christian life, but also about the, the many, many challenges. For example, perhaps you've read the Gospels and you've noticed that when people run up to Jesus and they, they say to Jesus, I want to follow you, I, I want to be your disciple, you, you may have noticed that Jesus most of the time kind of puts them off. That, that he will say, for example, you, you, you need, whoa, you need to consider the cost. Um, you need to, you need to uh, forsake all. Do you understand you need to forsake your family in order to follow me? And so um, the fact of the matter is that the Christian life is exceedingly difficult. And Jesus says uh, as much in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, he says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And in the same way, the Apostle Paul gives us some straight talk here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. And I think that this passage, believe it or not, is very appropriate for the occasion. Because, it, first of all, it talks about baptism. It talks about communion, which are on point for today. It refers back to the Exodus, which uh, we at Grace Baptist Church have been studying together for the last year. And as I say, it's very clear about the challenges that we face. And so I think it'll be good if we can spend just a few minutes to look to God's word to understand a little bit more about the danger. There's a danger. And then we want to see the, the Exodus example. That's uh, the title we'll take for this sermon. And then we want to apply some lessons that we learned from that example and then in closing here, some words of assurance. So that's, that's where we're headed. Let's get into it. Let's look first at the danger. The danger is spelled out for us at the end of chapter 9. And it's spelled out for us helpfully, I think, by way of analogy. So the Apostle Paul here describes the Christian life as a, as a race. And the, the believer as a runner, as an athlete, and it, I think that's easy enough for us to picture, even if you're not athletic or not into sports very much. Uh, chances are that you've, you've watched at some point the Summer Olympics. And that was very popular in the Corinthian culture that Paul was writing in, into. And um, <clears throat> so you know enough to know that in a race, the start is very important. You know, you need to get a good jump off of those blocks and uh, it's and so to follow the analogy through, let's just say again, it's exciting to see people getting saved and going through the waters of baptism to, to begin their Christian life with a sort of jump. And I think the Lord intends that baptism to be a, a glorious start to the Christian life. We need to celebrate that and, and we shouldn't in any way diminish that. I hope you never hear me diminishing that. However, it's important to know that in his analogy, Paul is placing much more of an emphasis on the actual running of the race and ultimately on finishing the race. The whole point of the race, you understand, is the prize, which in ancient days was a wreath that was made of, um, you know, like, foliage and, and flowers, boughs that were kind of twisted together, adorned with, with flowers. And here's where the analogy breaks down maybe a little bit, and Paul recognizes this, because in those ancient uh, Olympic games, that, that prize was just kind of a temporary thing. You know, just a few days after you put it in your trophy case, uh, it would start to turn a little bit. Right? It would go from green to brown. It would go from fragrant, fragrant to a little bit funky. And uh, that, that 
crown, that wreath doesn't last. But the prize that we are running to obtain, the prize that every believer, every faithful believer will win is evergreen, we could say. It's, it will never fade. As 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, the prize that we are about to take is an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. And that sounds pretty good, right? You might be wondering what the issue is. And the issue is that winning the race is difficult. Winning the race is very hard. Running the race is grueling. That's part of the problem. And here's the danger. Let me just come right to the point. We find this at the end of verse 27. The danger is getting DQ'd. You know what that means? It's getting, it's the possibility of getting disqualified. Paul uses himself as an example. And he holds out the frightening prospect of his being disqualified, even as his preaching is helping others. Now, I can already tell what some of you are thinking. You're understanding the analogy. I think you're tracking with it okay. But then it's starting to, to sound in your mind like it's at odds with your theology. Many of you have come to love and to find comfort in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. You believe, and rightly so, that a, that a person is, is, once they're saved, they're always saved. And that they cannot lose their salvation. You understand that. But let me address then a danger in apprehending the danger. Okay, so there might be a danger, but there, there's a danger that you don't fully apprehend the danger. And this passage, I believe, is talking about the danger of disqualification from the race, of not making it to the finish line. You're in danger of missing that danger if your theology kind of interrupts the warning and says, whoa, whoa, hey, no, nah, that's impossible. Don't, don't worry about that. Have no fear. I hope you'll realize that the Bible can talk about the perseverance of the saints and give urgent warnings about falling away. The Bible can do both of those things without any kind of embarrassment without any kind of fear of contradiction. And notice that it's the same Paul who taught us in Romans chapter 8 that we cannot be possibly be separated from the love of God in Christ. He taught us that those whom God foreknows and predestines and calls, those same ones he ultimately will glorify, that they will win the prize. That same Paul who taught us that is teaching us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is the same Paul that says in this chapter that he's disciplining his body, that he's controlling himself, that he is strenuously exercising self-control in all things, quote, lest after preaching to others, I be disqualified. You ask, well, then how, how do you reconcile those two truths? Let me just uh, borrow from my friend uh, Charles Spurgeon, who once answered to a very similar kind of a question. He said this, you don't reconcile friends. You know, if, the, if there's a seeming contradiction between those two, it exists only in our own minds. But perhaps it's helpful to, to think about this from two different perspectives. You know, sometimes scripture gives us a, a heavenly perspective, uh, the eternal reality, kind of the ultimate reality, that those who are truly saved, their salvation is secure in Christ. No one can ever snatch uh, a true believer out of 
the hands of their Lord. And sometimes the Bible comforts us by emphasizing that eternal, that ultimate sort of perspective. That by the grace of God, we will endure to the end. And isn't it true that often we need to be reminded by that reality? But then sometimes the Bible speaks to us from the plane of human existence. Okay, kind of like in Google Maps when you, when you uh, click it on street view. It, it takes you down and now you're looking straight at it. And, and sometimes the Bible does that. It shows us how things are as they appear to us and as we experience them in real time. And what do you experience in real time? What you discover is a number of people who claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and they go on for the Lord for a little while, appearing to live for the Lord, but then they're quitting. They're flaking out at the, I don't know, the 300-yard line. And then think about yourself in real time on the street level. You know, you'll leave, you'll leave here today, perhaps after being baptized today, you'll leave here. It'll be a special day, no doubt. You'll leave with a, a spring in your step. You'll be sprinting out of the blocks here in the spirit. And it won't be long before you are face to face with temptation. Um, temptation from your former friends, from um, your family, your unsaved family members. You're going to be facing temptation from your own appetites that are just tugging on you and screaming at you to abandon it all. And what on earth are you doing? I hope you understand that I'm not just speaking theoretically. As much as it, joy as it brings me to have the great privilege of baptizing people, new believers, it's always a little bit sad for me on, on baptism days because I remember that there's, there's people, and not just a few, there's people that I've baptized who today are no longer walking with the Lord. They've been disqualified. They, they've had similar outcomes as some of the sower seeds, you know, snatched up, scorched by Satan and by their own sin. They've, they've left off after the cares of the world. Is this a danger? We need to be able to say, absolutely, it's a danger. And no doubt you know people that have washed out. You know people that have walked away from the Lord. And like me, you could marshal your own examples. But I'm most interested in the examples that Paul gives. Okay, and let's look at this as our second heading. Let's look at the example. <clears throat> and we find it here in the first six verses of chapter 10. It turns out that we're quite familiar with this, this example because it's none other than the people of Israel during the time of the Exodus. And as I said at Grace Baptist Church for the last year, we've been studying that book and we've been getting acquainted with these people. And I think it's fair to say, I mean, we're only about halfway through the book, but even already, I think it's fair to say that we haven't been super impressed with these folks. But, but more on that in a minute. One, one thing also that we've seen in our study of Exodus is how that whole story is kind of analogous to the Christian life. For example, Israel's 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Well, that's, that's very, that very much resembles our life before Christ, you know, wherein we're, we're slaves to sin, we're slaves to Satan, we're under their oppression. The Exodus event itself, when with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, the Lord delivers his people out from that oppression, we, we've understood that and we've, we've recognized that the Bible speaks of this as a as akin to the salvation and the deliverance that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in him, by his death on the cross. 
And speaking of Christ, isn't this beautiful? We, we saw how the blood of a Passover lamb provided by the, the means by which God's judgment might pass over a people who appropriated that, that blood and took that blood for their covering. Beautiful picture of the gospel. And lately we've been following the Israelites as they have been following the Lord's leading through the wilderness. And we said that that is kind of analogous to the Christian life that they are uh, in the process of sanctification, so to speak, where God is rooting out there and our, you know, sanctification in, in our experiences, God, by the power of his Holy Spirit, rooting out the sin in our life and replacing it with the fruits of righteousness. And he does this often by painful providences. Very, I think the wilderness um, gives us a real good picture of that. But the analogies don't end there, okay? I, and I hope you don't think I'm making all of this stuff, stuff up. I, I'm, uh, I think these are, I think the, the biblical authors give us reason to make these uh, connections. For example, look at, at what Paul's doing in this passage, in our passage today. Paul's giving us more comparisons in our text. For example, he says the manna, the manna that the Lord provided from heaven, well, that was a sort of spiritual food. It's a, it's a sort of precursor to the, the bread that we eat as believers during communion. And not only that, but the, the drink that they drank that was provided by God is akin to the, the spiritual drink that we drink at communion as we'll do a little bit later. And that water, that spiritual drink, God provided them to eat, to drink by striking a rock. And uh, speaking of that rock, Paul says that that rock prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ. And speaking of water, let's notice what Paul points to as a being... Uh, as a type of baptism. Just notice that. He says that um, the Red Sea crossing is a sort of baptism. It's also, um, the pillar of cloud is also a sort of baptism. Do you see that from the text? And, I, and those are not two separate things. It's not being baptized into a cloud and then later being baptized into water. Those are meant to be taken together and it's referring to that same event, that Red Sea crossing, where the people of God were sort of enveloped in the cloud, the pillar of cloud, that was the presence of God leading them. And the presence of God leading them in that cloud, through that cloud, led them all the way through water, so to speak. There was, there was water all around them, and so they were sort of baptized, if you will, into Moses the text says. And this baptism occurred at the very beginning uh, of their journey after they had been rescued. And so I think Paul's right. I think this is an excellent sort of precursor to the baptism that we undergo, that some folks today will undergo. And will you allow me to just point something out as a side note? I admit that this is certainly not the main point of this passage. And I don't want you to think that I'm picking a fight with anyone. But I do want to suggest to you that this connection between the pillar of cloud and, um, and the Red Sea and baptism, it, I think it likely gives us a strong clue about the Lord's intended mode of baptism. Uh, we are Baptists. We believe in the full immersion of the believer in water. And many of the, many, you know, there's lots of reasons why we believe that. But one of them, I think, is, is even coming from this text. We understand that um, back then the Lord didn't just kind of sprinkle people with the cloud. The, the people weren't just kind of, there wasn't a little bit of cloud. They were enveloped in the cloud. They were immersed in it. And likewise, when they go through the Red Sea, they go through, as I say, with water all around them. 
And I hope you can see that if baptism is by sprinkling or pouring or even dipping, then I don't think Paul ever would have recognized the Red Sea crossing as a precursor to it. Anyway, I just leave that with you. That's just a little bonus for you. All of that is not Paul's main port, point of comparison. The main point of comparison is between us and the people of Israel. As verse 1 says, these are our forefathers. They all experienced the same kind of blessings from God, whether it be salvation or baptism or communion. Paul's saying that like us, they were all runners in the race who burst out of their starting blocks on fire for the Lord. But we read the, the very sobering summary in, in verse 5. It says, Nevertheless, with, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. That word overthrown means strewn, as I say it, or strown, as uh, some of you say it. And the picture that you get, it's a sobering picture. It's just, it's just thousands of bodies littering the wilderness. Like, like runners collapsed at the side of the track. Why? Why did this happen? Well, as verse 6 and following goes on to explain, the people gave in to idolatry. You'll perhaps remember the most famous example of that, and that is that it happened when Moses had gone up on the mountain to meet with God um, to receive the law, and turns out that he, they were taking far longer than the people wanted, far more than they could tolerate, and they had a hankering to, to worship something, and so they donated all of their gold, and they melted it all down, and they formed a golden calf which they proceeded to worship and they said they bowed down to it and said behold our god who brought us out of egypt and people didn't just engage in idolatry they, they gave in to their appetite for immorality the text here tells us that on one occasion 23,000 people were killed as an act of judgment by god in a single day What's more, they put God to the test, and they were a bunch of grumblers. We'll look at that in just a minute, but I want you to notice that the result was destruction and disqualification. They drop out of the race. They failed to enter the promised land. And the point is, once again, that we are not of a different species as the people of Israel. When we read these Old Testament narratives and when we read of the wickedness of the people, like bowing down, making a golden calf and bowing down to it, we say, how could you people do that? How could they do that? And, and that should not be our reaction. Our reaction ought to be, if you have any kind of self-awareness, our reaction ought to be, I am they. I have the capacity for exactly that. I'm unfaithful like Israel. When we, re when we read of the people of Israel and of their sin, here's the bottom line. It's spelled out for us in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples to us that we might not desire evil as they did. And in case we didn't get that, the same kind of sentiment is repeated in verse 11. It says, now these things happen to them as an example, but they're written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So if, if we understand that, then we can move on in the third place to the application. The application. And let me just give you a little sneak peek into the struggles of a preacher. You know, when you're writing a sermon... Typically, the hardest part is the application. And it, it almost always takes a lot of pondering, a lot of prayer to see how a particular passage is relevant for the people in the pews. But then again, 
sometimes the application is very easy. Sometimes it's spelled out for you by the biblical authors in black and white. And thankfully, that's the case here. So what we have in verses 7 to 10 are four imperatives or commands. These are things to put into practice. These are things that must be done, or actually in this case, things that must not be done in light of the Exodus example. And I, I want to just introduce these to you briefly, um, but I trust the Holy Spirit will apply these even further in, in each of your cases, in, each, in my case as well. Number one, here, here's the application. Application number one, flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. We've already mentioned the golden calf incident, but there are many, many more examples. In fact, you read through the Old Testament and what you find over and over again is that these people are just going after any God that they can get their hands on. They're influenced by uh, their pagan neighbors or when they're in captivity. Um, they're, they're influenced by pagan women. They marry them and then before long you see that they're worshiping those pagan gods. And the results in every single case are devastating. Now, this application would be directly applicable in the case of Corinth, which is Paul's original audience, because that city, like so many at that time, were, it was full of idols. And there was constant pressure on Christians, whether it be from uh, their family members or their friends or their employers, whatever, tremendous pressure on new Christians to fall back into the worship of other gods. And that's ultimately what an idol is, right? It's a God substitute. It's, it's something that, that knocks God off of his throne at, at his rightful place at the top and seeks to displace God so that it, is, it, it wants to be worshipped in his place. And that means that even if you're not bowing down to a physical idol, you can still be an idolater. The danger is real. And here's what, here's what it looks like. A young person commits his life to the Lord and then gets baptized, publicly proclaims that Jesus is all that he's ever wanted and all that he's ever needed. But almost immediately, and for the rest of his life, he's going to be propositioned by every God substitute imaginable. And the pitch will be, the pitch will come to that person and be like, is God really all that you need? Is, is, is Jesus really enough? Are you really satisfied in, in your Savior? No, I think what you really need to give yourself fully to is your job. You know, your, your, a particular relationship, your kids, your family, yourself. These are all I, idols, even though they might not take the shape and be covered in gold. But all of these are just cheap substitutes. And the point is, friends, that they will make shipwreck of your faith. You would have to take the L in that case. It, it would disqualify you from the prize. And here's the second application. Flee immorality. Flee immorality. Look at verse 8. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 died in a single day. I want you to notice that there's not much space between idolatry and immorality. They, they go hand in hand. And this was certainly the case in the ancient Near East, among the people that Israel intermingled with. And it was certainly the case in the first century in Corinth. You know, um, sexual immorality was part of pagan religious ceremonies. It was often part of idol worship. And so what you have um, in verse 7 is this expression. 
The people sat down to eat and drink. In other words, they were engaging in their idolatrous rituals. That was part of their religion. And then they <clears throat> rose up to play. And that's a euphemism for, you know, sporting. And what's the connection between those two? Between sexual immorality and idolatry? Well, for one, sexual immorality is a sort of idolatry. That's a, a God substitute in the lives of many, many people. But also, if you're going to indulge that, if you're going to indulge sexual immorality, most people are going to need some sort of a justification, okay, in order to ease their conscience. And the very best kind of justification that you could ever have for sin is if you can somehow cloak it in religious garb. If you can regard your sin as a sort of religious spiritual duty, it's going to be much easier to partake of it. But Paul calls it for what it truly is. It's immorality. Immorality. You know what? Im is the, the negation. Moral. You know what that is. So immoral is the exact opposite of moral. It's wrong. It's sinful. It's wicked. And the evidence for that is that when the Israelites did engage in it, God judged them severely. 23,000 dying in one single day. Illicit sex is also described in verse 8 as an indulgence. And I think that's a, a helpful Word. Just think about that word because it, it pictures the, the, the proximity and the power of this particular temptation. Um, to indulge something means that it's there. It's, it's resident within you. Okay? It's, it's, it's ready to just, it, it's sitting there um, desiring and screaming out to be indulged in. Yeah, we live in a very sexualized culture and uh, the world and the devil are constantly dangling that particular forbidden fruit in front of our eyes. So there's definitely that. But truth be told, the more powerful temptation along these lines comes from within. It comes from the lusts of our own flesh the appetites of our own sinful nature, as I say, that are just screaming out like kids in a supermarket for candy, just kind of screaming out to be satisfied. And when we give in, we are indulging those appetites. And indulging sexual immorality is a sure path to disqualification and destruction. What are we to do then when our, when our lusts demand and when our appetites are screaming at us? What do you do? Well, for one, we can follow the example of Paul. And look again back to chapter 9, verses 25 to 27. What does he do in those situations? Well, he exercises self-control. He does that in all things. He, he, um, he's like an athlete, okay? Let me ask you this. When's the last time you saw a marathon runner take a detour to Mickey D's? You know, like in the middle of the 20, whatever that is, 23.6 or something like that. In the middle of that long race, he takes a detour to Mickey D's and orders like a couple of Big Macs, a large fry, and a bottomless Coke. You've never seen that. You've never seen it because to indulge those kinds of cravings is totally incompatible with running a race in such a way as to win the prize. The only prize that that guy's winning is that cheap plastic toy that he gets with his Happy Meal, which is really only fit for the trash, okay? No athletes are 
are, are known for that. Athletes instead are known for their self-control, as verse 27 says, for how they discipline their body, how they keep it in subjection and say no to it. They deal severely with these destructive sorts of appetites so as to silence the screams. Why? It's because they've got their eye on the prize. It's because they, they have in view something much better, something far more lovely, something much longer lasting, even eternal glory. So brothers and sisters, Christians new and old, let us flee sexual immorality. Let it not even be named among us. Athletes are famous for, for their self-control. How much more sh so should believers be? Oh, that the Holy Spirit would produce that, that fruit in us for the glory of Christ and for the sake of a watching world. The third application is, do not test the Lord. Now, I don't think that means what we initially think it might mean. I don't think Paul is here addressing our propensity to make the Lord jump through our hoops and to, you know, reveal his specific and secret will for our lives by, by us laying out fleeces for him and making him perform all of these, these sorts of things. I don't think that Paul's talking about that kind of a thing, even though that's pretty, pretty bad. That's certainly ill-advised. Instead, I think the context leads us to understand that putting the Lord to the test is to basically presume on his grace. It's to bank on his leniency. Essentially, it's to be daring him to discipline us. It's suffering under the delusion that, that we can go on sinning without any kind of consequence because nothing's nothing bad has happened to us thus far. We can just keep on uh, engaging in a pattern of unrepentant sin, and we can do so with immunity. Now, the Puritans had a word for this. They described this as sinning with a high hand, high-handed sin. And, uh, you know, it's possible for a person to sin out of ignorance or out of just simple weakness, but that's not the kind of sin that's being described here. This is, this is a kind of, putting to the, the Lord to the test is to engage in sin repeatedly, willfully, rebelliously, defiantly. And Paul says, do not do that. It's destructive. Some of the Israelites did that, and they were destroyed by serpents. The wrath that they presumed wouldn't come upon them came upon them. And that was written down for our example so that we would not put the Lord to the test. Do not put the Lord to the test by persisting in unrepentant, willful sin. Now the fourth and final application is, is this imperative. Do not grumble against the Lord. It's, I think that is very much related to the third because in, in the example that Paul gives, and this time he's pulling from Numbers chapter 21, the persistent sin, the willful putting the Lord to the test kind of sin that the Israelites engaged in was the sin of grumbling and complaining. And already in our study of Exodus, again, we're only about halfway through, but the Israelites have become infamous for their grumbling. And they grumbled about everything, from food, you know, they grumbled about water, you name it, they complained about it. Grumbling and complaining. And I, want you, I, I don't want you to miss what's happened here. You know, in the space of only four imperatives, we've gone from what we would classify as kind of big sins, idolatry, sexual immorality, to grumbling, which, let's be honest, doesn't even make it on our radar much of the time as being 
even being sinful. Jerry Bridges lists a a species of this sin in his book that he calls Respectable Sins. That is, sins, sins that are carried out in polite company without so much as the bat of an eye. But here's what a holy God thinks about grumbling. He destroys grumblers by the destroyer. Friends, when you settle into a a cynical spirit, you know, a bitter, complaining, despondent sort of conviction that the Lord has dealt you a bad hand, that he has not dealt well with you, that is the road to disqualification and destruction. It's not, it's not kind of like a, a, a neutral, okay, normal thing for people to do. It is wicked sin. Listed among idolatry and immorality. And, and it's true. A multitude of people have made shipwreck of their faith by turning to sex. But it's also true that many have dropped out of the race by turning sour. Therefore, let us, as the Bible says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Friends, let's not grumble against the Lord. Now, my time I can feel is running out, so let me just leave you with the assurance. I don't want to leave you on... A sour note. Kind of a depressing message for such a wonderful day, isn't it? I mean, this is a membership extravaganza. And here I am talking about all kinds of dangers and the possibility of dropping out, being disqualified, being destroyed. You're wondering, is is there any hope? Is the Christian life even possible? These young people who we'll hear from in just a few minutes who who may be in the race for the next 60 or 70 years, how how are they not going to blow a tire and just drop out, end up wrecked on the side of the raceway, end up in a scrapyard? Well, ultimately, because of three words in the middle of verse 13, God is faithful. As Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, if we are faithless, and we will be faithless, and we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. You you recognize that all hell is bent on your destruction. Your sinful self is is bent on your self-destruction. But friends, God is bent on your deliverance. Isn't that the Exodus example? That's the story of the whole story, really, of the Exodus, that God is intent on delivering his people. Yes, there's danger on every side. Yes, there's temptations to the left and pitfalls to the right. But we are stuck in the middle with God. And here's another reality check. There's not one temptation that has seized you or that that you'll possibly face that is not common to to man. Again, he's drawing on the same discussion that we're not fundamentally different than the Israelites. The same kinds of things that they struggled with 4,000 years ago or whatever, we struggle with. It's not harder to be a a Christian in the year 2023. God is faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. Again, remember the Exodus example. He is a God who knows how to provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I'm confident of this, that if you are truly his, then you will endure. You will make it. 
You will win the race. You will lay hold of the prize. You will gain the crown. But you need to run, and you need to run in such a way as to win and not be disqualified. So brothers and sisters, let's, let's run. Let's all of us run. Whether you're just starting out on this race today, whether you're in the middle of the race, or whether you're nearing the finish line. I, I know that I'm out of time, but just can I just say a word to our dear older saints? So glad that you're with us. And I'm not pandering to you when I say, I'm telling you the truth, when I say that our church depends on you. You, you, are, you guys are the, the crown jewels of our church. And these new Christians need you. We all need you. It's Satan's strategy. It's the world's strategy. I, I detest this. But you, you understand what's going on these days is they want to divide us along every line possible, along racial lines, along gender lines, along age lines. The devil would lo love nothing more than to pit the younger Grace Baptists against the older or vice versa. He, he would love to see nothing more than for grumbling and bitterness to result. But as we've seen, that, that is, that's the way to destruction. But we battle this in the power of the Spirit by running the race together, arm in arm. And older saints, let me just extend the analogy a bit. If you don't mind I've seen enough races I'm not I'm not in any kind of athletic races that, that should be obvious enough but but my my son Job is into track and I uh, love to watch him race I've seen a lot of races and I know that that when you're in the final stretch of your race that's not the time to coast that's not the time to be looking behind you that's the time to kick it down. That's the time to put it into the next gear. That's the time that you sprint to the finish. You just spend it all. You leave nothing in the tank. You, you can, a, a runner can recover on the other side of the finish line. And you, you, you there's going to be lots of time for you to rest in glory. But until then, you need to, you need to spend it for the Lord's sake and for his people's sake. I'll, I'll close with the, I really will close, <laughs> with the words to a hymn that we love to sing, that if we would have sung, if I had any kind of foresight, it's a prayer to God, but it's also an encouragement and an exhortation to one another. It goes like this. May we run the race May we keep the faith. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus. That we'll not lose heart in our struggle with sin. And through suffering, no endurance. May we arm ourselves with the mind of Christ to rejoice in trials and be not surprised. May our hearts be so consumed by you that we never cease to praise. Amen.